Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Please turn to Galatians chapter 5. While you're turning, let me just say that you guys are very good at keeping secrets. I uh, had no idea in the first service. I was uh, a little overwhelmed when I got up here just because I didn't know what to say, which is unusual for me. I say a lot, and it's kind of my job, so you think I would know, but I had nothing. Uh, I am amused by the idea that I'm going to tackle fashion in the next 10 years. A little offended, actually, that you all found that so funny. But I will be wearing my romper tonight. <laughs> Definitely come, just so you can see that. <laughs> Next week is later hosen. All right. Uh, let me also thank Chris for preaching. Uh, it's, sorry, I'm back to that real quick. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years. Uh, many of you have been very faithful along the way. Uh, Jordan is right. A lot has changed over the time. A lot of you have changed over the time. Uh, a lot of, I've changed over that time. I've gotten a lot older in 10 years. The kids were like this when we got here, and now Nathaniel's almost as tall as I am. That's crazy. But uh, God has been very good. One thing that hasn't changed is the love here within this church and the goodness of God that has been poured out on us. So very, very thankful for that. Let me thank Chris for preaching the past couple of Sundays. Uh, it was a blessing to be able to take a little break, particularly last week, to be able to go out to the Rock and Roll Half Marathon and watch Jamie and Jen and uh, Kimberly and Ashley run the, the marathon. Be a, it's my favorite kind of race, the one I'm not running. That's what <laughs> I've never had such a great race. As that one, uh, I've never had a race, actually, shockingly, um, as that one. There was uh, apparently some confusion, though. Some people thought that I was the one running the race. And to that, I say thank you for the compliment, <laughs> but new. No, uh, that was not the case. Uh, all the ladies were running, and we had a great time watching them, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to read Galatians 5, 1 to 15, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 1. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity now to, to come and study your word. I pray that it will be clear. Spirit, help us to understand and to see and be encouraged by the sufficiency of our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ alone. May that be the truth that, that we come out of here today with. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in April, I was out in Chesapeake one day for some meetings or running some errands or something. I don't remember what I was doing. And I was driving north on Battlefield Boulevard heading toward Volvo Parkway. And if you're familiar with that part of Chesapeake, you know that right there on, I think it's the southeast corner of Battlefield and Volvo, there's a, a Golden Corral. And out in front of the Golden Corral, uh, normally there's a whole bunch of signs posted. And these signs are advertising all kinds of things, community events, uh, candidates for office, church things that are going on in the area, whatever the case. And normally I wouldn't pay any attention to these. But as I passed by this day, one sign in particular caught my eye. Now, I was pretty sure I had read it correctly, but there was a part of me that couldn't believe that I had actually seen what I thought I just saw. And since I couldn't stop at the moment, I had to get to a meeting or whatever it was, I, I just went ahead and drove past it. But I came back to it after the meeting, parked the car there in the Golden Crowd parking lot, got out, walked around, confirmed it really did say what I thought it said, and took a picture, and here's the sign. It is advertising the Bataan Death March Memorial Run. In, of all places, the Great Dismal Swamp. Now, is it just me, or does it seem perhaps a little bit inappropriate or maybe insensitive to try to memorialize the, the people who died in the Bataan Death March by having a run in a swamp? Me? No? You? Okay, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Uh, it made me cringe a little bit. To me, it didn't really seem appropriate, though it did give me a number of very funny jokes, uh, none of which I feel like I can share with you this morning, especially not that are going to be posted online. But if you'd like to hear them later, they're all also very insensitive as well. Anyway, uh, it's been on my mind over the last few weeks to show that picture because I've, I've wondered as we've been reading through uh, the text here, there's a sense in which, you know, some of Paul's comments, particularly in the, in the context of verses 2 through 12, have come across as maybe a little insensitive or inappropriate as well. Uh, the specific topic in view here is circumcision. And three times in the text, Paul makes a subtle or really not so subtle uh, joke, pun, wordplay comment on that particular topic. Let's just get those out of the way here so you can see them. First, if you're in your Bible, look at verse 4. Uh, you see he tells them that if they accept circumcision, that they will be severed from Christ. That's a little subtle, but not really very subtle at all. He, he's, he's saying to them very directly, look, what's going to be severed here is not your foreskin. It's going to be your soul. You yourself will be severed from Christ if this is what you do. The second is in verse 11 when Paul says that if he still preached circumcision, then the offense of the cross would have been removed. Literally there, the wording is cut off. Again, not a very subtle comment. He's, he's clearly trying to get their attention and keep it on the, focus, on the issue at hand. The third one isn't subtle at all. Verse 12, I wish that those who are upsetting you through the preaching of this false gospel wouldn't just stop at the foreskin. I wish they'd go all the way. I'd wish they cut the whole thing off, emasculate themselves. Now, I have a diagram. No, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> I had to cut the tension there a little bit because all of you are like, I don't know what to do with that. In the first service, as I said that, I, I, meant to, 
I went to make a motion to pretend like parents were covering their children's eyes, and when I did, I threw this. <laughs> Literally, I threw it over there. Ed Hensler was sitting right over there. I almost hit Ed, but that was quite funny as well, but no. Um, you know, these are the, the three references, and if you think that any of that is inappropriate or crass in any way, first on my part, let me just say to you that I'm not embellishing this. I'm not, I'm not saying more than the scriptures say. I'm, I'm putting it out there. The scriptures can be very blunt like this sometimes, and this is what Paul is being here. He's being very blunt, very direct with his comments, so, so don't, don't take issue with me. Second, if you think Paul is being inappropriate or crass in any way, I would remind you that A, he is an apostle and he can say whatever he wants. <laughs> B, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and these are God's very words to us, okay? So these aren't just Paul's words. These are God's words. Just keep that in mind as you process it. C, maybe you're being a little oversensitive, and D, perhaps you still don't really appreciate how much danger the Galatians are in and what lengths Paul is willing to go to to protect them from this danger. It's really this serious. Paul is not being inappropriate here. He is being direct, maybe extremely direct, but he is definitely not being inappropriate because what is at stake here is nothing less than the freedom of the Galatians, their freedom from sin, their freedom from death, from the law, from condemnation, from guilt, from all of these things. And Paul wants them to continue in that freedom. And that's what we spent the last few weeks here talking about in verse 1, right? Uh, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that I, freedom that, that Christ is getting for purchasing for us here by his death isn't just some fuzzy concept of freedom that, that we can make to mean whatever we want. No, it has an, a specific biblical context or framework behind it that we took three Sundays to look at. So just to remind you, it's the freedom that's tied to our new relationship with God. It's the freedom that became ours as a result of the death of Christ. It's a freedom to not live under the burden of the law, but in the new life in the spirit. It's the kind of freedom that only genuine Christians can experience. Non-believers can't. It's a freedom that liberates us to be what God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do. And therefore, it's the kind of freedom that has social implications. In other words, it changes how we live. It's this kind of freedom that Christ has set us free for. And it's this kind of freedom that Paul now wants us to stand firm in, to never again submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, in theory, Paul could have stopped right there because that comment alone is, is, is high level enough, overarching enough that, that he could just say, okay, take that now and apply it to anything. Whatever you come to, whatever questions you have in life, just remember that. You're free. You're free. Don't go back. You're free. That would be sufficient. That's not what he does. He didn't have to apply it, but he takes time here to do that in a few specific areas because he wants to help the Galatians. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to walk with him through each of these applications to make sure we understand them and then to apply them to ourselves as well so that we can both live in and live out the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. And the first area of focus or of application that Paul gives to the Galatians here has to do with the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Paul begins here in verse 2 with an assertion. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, keep in mind that as he says this, he's speaking to an audience of people in this church who 
have in the past claimed to be believers and who, even as he's writing this, are still claiming to be believers, to be Christians. But as we now understand quite well, this group of false teachers has come in and they're telling this church, hey, look, if you genuinely want to be right with God, not only do you have to accept Jesus, place your faith in him, but you also have to keep the Old Testament law. Basically, you need to, to convert to Judaism and live under the law's commands and authorities. But since he specifically speaks here of someone accepting circumcision, it would seem more likely that his focus right now is on those Gentile believers within the Galatian church who maybe are hearing some of this stuff for the very first time. They're not from this background. They don't understand it. And now these teachers are there like, oh, okay, you've accepted Jesus? That's great. I'm really glad to hear that. But, you know, to be a true child of God, to really be one of God's people, you also have to keep the Old Testament law. You also have to go through all of these things. And how would this commitment be shown? Well, in the Jewish mind of Paul's day, the act or the mark that officially sets you apart as being one of God's chosen people was circumcision. For boys who grew uh, were born into a Jewish home, you know, this would just be done automatically for them when they're eight days old. They'd be taken to the temple or to the synagogue, and then they'd be circumcised. They'd never know a day in their life when that wasn't true of them. But for a Gentile who was converting to, to Judaism, you know, at whatever point of life he converted, that's the point where he would be circumcised. He would accept circumcision as a, as a sign of his conversion. Now, before I move on, let me address a question that might be in the minds of like, I don't know, half the people in the room perhaps. You know, what about the ladies? What about women who were converting to Judaism during Paul's day? What, what did they have to do? Well, um, first of all, I know that there is something in our day and age that's called female circumcision. Understand that is a misnomer. It is not circumcision at all. It's a form of brutal mutilation and torture. So this is not... What Paul is thinking of here, there was no aspect of that in the Jewish context of Paul's day. In his day, circumcision only referred to what we would normally think of it as referring to, and that's the removal of a man's foreskin, which again raises the question, well, then how did women convert? I mean, if circumcision is the mark of conversion, what, what did they do? Well, the answer for the majority of women was that it would uh, sort of be counted to them through whatever male figurehead they were under at that time. Okay, so if you, for example, a Gentile couple, your husband is converting to Judaism, and he is circumcised, well, guess what? You, you get, the, 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 get covered by that, so to speak. You're kind of included in that. Or maybe you're a child, you're a, a, a little girl, or you're an unmarried woman still living in your father's home. He converts. Again, you're covered by that. Or if you're living basically in any male relative's home and that man converts to Judaism, Pretty much everyone in his household, all the females at least, would be included in that. The idea of women living on their own in Paul's day, just not really heard of. It's not a common, common thing. And so for them to convert uh, like that would be a little bit unusual. For anyone outside of those three groups, though, any women who converted without or apart from a male figurehead, yeah, I can't really answer the question of how they would, how they would do this. It was probably so rare that it was handled on a case-by-case -case basis at the local level, whatever the local synagogue decided was sort of what was done. But, but here's the point you need to get through all of that. The, the act of accepting circumcision is not about the ritual, nor is it about the medical procedure. It's about the fact that you are denoting in your own life that you are converting to and accepting the Old Testament law and the Jewish way of life 
as being the way in which you're going to be made right with God. It's not about the what or the how. It's really about the why. That's really what it comes down to. Regardless of who it is, what they're thinking of, it's why are you doing this? It would be your way of affirming your belief that God only accepts those who follow the Old Testament law. And this is exactly what the, the false teachers have been teaching all along, right? Oh, it's great that you've accepted the, the Jewish Messiah. I'm so happy for you. I and mean, You need to do that. Great. Keep that up. But you also need this. You need to live your life in these confines and find your acceptance before God through this code. This is what you also need. Jesus alone is not enough to either be accepted by God or to live acceptably before God. You're going to have to keep the law. So if you buy into that line of thought, Paul says, if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. No advantage. At best, at that moment, he becomes maybe a redundant piece of your salvation portfolio, right? You've got a, a little portfolio of things that you think are going to help you be right with God. And, and so here's Jesus. He's a piece, but, you know, he's not exclusive. I also need this stuff over here. So he just kind of is helping me out. At best, he's a redundant piece, but more likely, he's completely unnecessary. Because all of those advantages of Christ over the law that Paul has been talking about over and over and over again throughout this letter, they at that point either become untrue or completely unnecessary. What advantages, you ask? Oh, I don't know. How about maybe our sins being paid for, 1-3, being delivered from this present evil age, 1-3, God's grace, 1-6, uh, justification through faith, 2-16, death to the law, 2-19, life, 2-20, Receiving the Spirit, 3.1. Becoming sons of Abraham, 3.7. Receiving the blessings of Abraham, 3.9. Being freed from the curse, 3.13. Becoming sons of God, 3.26. Union with Christ, 3.28. Being heirs of Abraham's promise, 3.29. Being adopted, 4.5. Being able to call God Abba, 4.6. Being known by God, 4.9. Being a free child, 4.31. And living in freedom, 5.1. Maybe some of those, okay? One or two. These are the advantages that he's been listing for us throughout his letter of how Christ is so much better than the law. Well, if you accept circumcision, you're saying that's not true. He's not adding any of these things to you. They are untrue and of no value if you have to keep the law in order to be right with God. And if you accept circumcision, that's what you're saying. Now, let's pause at this moment and just, you know, Listen very carefully here, because there's something we need to understand right at this particular point, I think. And it's probably one of the biggest, um, I'll just say it like that, the biggest problems with genuine biblical Christianity. All right, you want to know what it is? Here it is. Here's the biggest problem with genuine biblical Christianity. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. Uh, Jesus' claim, the gospel's claim is summed up in one of Jesus' better-known statements, John 14, 6, a verse you probably know well. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, do, you, do you understand, whether that claim is true or false, do you understand the claim itself? You can't, like, change what Jesus is saying there. He's either right or he's wrong, but you can't change what he's, what he's claiming. He is saying that I, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived 2,000 years ago, am the one and only person through whom you can come to God. 
There's no other way. I am the one and only way. I am the one and only truth, and I am the one and only source of life. It's either me or it's nothing. That's his claim. Again, whether that claim is true or false is a completely separate question. Do you understand the claim? Okay, you got it? All right. It, it is this claim that the false teachers are denying through their false gospel. Jesus is not the way. Jesus is not the truth, and he is not the only source of life, and you can come to the Father through a different means than him. And that means, of course, is the Old Testament law. And Paul says, therefore, look, if you do this Galatians, you're going to be denying the exclusive claim of Jesus. You are now going to have to live to be obligated to keep the whole law. You've chosen a team at this point. You picked your side. You are denying that Jesus is the way, and you are affirming that the Old Testament law is really the way, and that decision is real, and it is serious. It will obligate them to spend the rest of their lives attempting to be accepted by God and to live acceptably before God through nothing other than the Old Testament law. And, of course, now that we've gone through Galatians long enough, you shouldn't <clears throat> know the problem with that line of thinking there. What's the problem with it? It's, it's that the law can't do that. The law was never meant to do that. The law condemns. The law brings a curse. It does not bring righteousness. So if they go this route, they are walking away from Christ himself and from the grace of God offered to us through Christ. You are severed from Christ, you who to be justified by the law. You have fallen away for, from grace. You know, he speaks here of apostasy. And, and as I, I use that word, I recognize that that's a loaded term for a lot of people. And depending on your own background and your own understanding, you may be thinking of like, you know, a dozen different things right now about what the word apostasy means and what it implies, particularly here in this context. May I ask you uh, very kindly and humbly to set aside your assumptions for a moment and to just think about this with me? First, <clears throat> let's define our term a little bit. To apostatize is to abandon or renounce your previously affirmed religious belief. This is a, a good definition of the word apostatize. It is to announce and or, excuse me, renounce and or abandon your previously affirmed religious belief. So you used to say you believed A, but now you're abandoning that. You're renouncing that and saying, I no longer believe A, I now believe B. All right, that's, that is apostasy. It is a purposeful decision. The Bible never speaks, never speaks of people losing their salvation, that word is, needs to be stricken from our vocabulary when it comes to this particular topic. That, that The idea that it could be accidental or involuntary or lost through some action is not found anywhere in Scripture. That's, that's how I was taught as I was growing up. That's exactly how I was taught growing, as I was growing up. But the Bible never speaks of it that way. The Bible does, however, speak about people walking away from and renouncing their previously affirmed faith. Okay, so that's a definition of apostasy. Second, let's recognize that all you and I can ever see, 
hear judge when it comes to trying to think about other people's salvation is their words and their actions. That's all we have. I can listen to their words and I can watch their actions, but I can never see their heart. Never. I never have that ability. Um, I can't tell you how many people over the years have asked me the question, in effect, hey, Stacy, do you, do you think I'm a believer? How could I know? Like, I can't tell you for sure that my wife is a believer or that my children are believers or that the other elders of this church are believers. I can listen to their words and I can watch their actions and I can say, you know, do their words match what I would expect a genuine believer to, to say, to confess, yes, no? Or do their actions match what I would expect a genuine believer to live like, yes, no? But in the end, I, I can't say for certain all I have are words and actions. I can't see the heart. And the problem with this is both words and actions can be deceiving, right? You know, think of Jesus, Matthew 7, passage we've talked about before. He describes a group of people there in Matthew 7 who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, right words. Did we not do many mighty works, right actions? And yet, what does he say to them? Depart from me, I, I never knew you. Right words, right actions, no salvation. I, I, I can't know. I can't know by looking at someone's words or actions what's really, and that's whether they're claiming to be a believer now or someone who's renouncing their Christianity. I have no idea. So someone claiming to be a Christian, even someone living like they're a Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. Got it? Okay, that's just, just the truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. People can have words and actions without having a genuinely changed heart. Third, let's try <clears throat> to be a little more broad and biblical with our understanding of salvation than what we generally tend to be. Excuse me. And I was trying to think of a good analogy here to uh, help us understand this, but whatever analogy I came up with, it, it, it fell short in some like terrible way, so eventually I just gave up on that. I'm just going to state the idea, and then I'll try to explain it a little bit. The New Testament does not speak of salvation as being only an event that occurred at some time in the past. The New Testament does not speak of salvation as being only an event that occurred sometime in the past, but, but this is how most Christians talk about it. Most Christians, when they're going to you know, talk about it, are going to refer to it as just like a one-time thing that happened in your past that you can talk about. So they'll come and say, hey, tell me about when you were saved. What do you notice about the question itself? It's past tense. They're looking back. They want to hear the story of an event. And when we answer it, how do we tend to answer it? We say, well, you know, I was saved on October 18th, 1996. It was an afternoon, and we tell a story. So our answer goes past tense as well. We focus only in the back, to the past, but this is not how the New Testament fully describes salvation. You see, when the New Testament authors speak of salvation, they speak of it as being past, present, and future all at once. Um, I am saved, past. I am being saved, present. I will be saved. Future, all three go together. In fact, you have an example of the third one, the future tense, right here in verse 5. You can see it behind me. When Paul says that through the Spirit, by faith, 
we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's waiting for it. That's future. You say, well, wait a minute. Why is he waiting for it if he already has it? Is, is Paul not righteous now? And if, you, you know, if he's righteous now, why is he waiting for it? I don't understand how these two can be true. Well, you know, just think about this back in chapter 3, verse 6. He indicated that we could be declared righteous just like Abraham was. That's a past tense event. You, know, you place your faith in Christ and you are justified, past tense. In chapter 3, verse 11, it was based on our faith, of course. Chapter 3, verse 11, he indicated that the righteous live by faith, present tense. It's not just a past tense thing and it's forever done. No, it's a continual thing. You're continually living in that faith and living out that faith. There's something continuing there. Here in 5.5, it's still future by faith. We're waiting for the hope of righteousness. So which is it? You know, are we definitely declared righteous by faith at some point in the past, or do we have to continually live in faith every moment, or are we by faith still waiting for a hope of righteousness? Which one is it? Is it A, B, or C? And for the genuine believer, the answer is yes. It's all three. It's A, B, and C all at once. So what that means then is when someone next time asks you to tell them about when you were saved, you should have a little fun with your answer, right? You should say to them, well, I'm being saved right now as we speak. I'll be saved in the future when I see Jesus face to face. I, both of those statements are 100% true, 100% biblical. I promise you the person you're talking to won't have a clue how to handle that. They're going to be like, what? You're being saved right now? You're going to be saved like... We, we just don't think this way because nobody talks like that, except, of course, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament. But outside of those nobodies, nobody talks like this. It's all past tense, never anything else. And in order to properly think about apostasy, we need to be more broad and biblical with our understanding of salvation. So let's put all of that together. Someone can say they're a believer. They can even live like it. They can tell you with perfect clarity about the moment they were saved and the story that went around that. But understand, if they do not continue in that faith until the end, then the New Testament writers would say that they were never truly saved. Two passages of Scripture for you. First from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says to the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, by which you are being saved, still present tense, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, he's looking to the future now, unless you believed in vain. If you don't hold fast to that truth to the end, you had vain belief. It wasn't real belief, it was empty belief, it was worthless belief. That's not the kind of genuine saving faith that the New Testament talks about. All you had was vain belief. Here's another one, John's wording. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he's talking about a group of people within the church who have walked away from Jesus. They've renounced him and they've gone off in a different direction, pursuing error. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. 
you know, they're turning away from Christ. Their failure to persevere, to continue, proves they were never really a part of us. It might have looked that way. We might have thought that. We might have heard that for a time. But, but their decisions, their choices, their actions have proved otherwise. This is exactly what Paul is referring to here with the Galatians. If you turn away from Christ towards circumcision, you accept the law as being the means by which you can be uh, acceptable before God, you're not just severing your foreskin. You are severing your soul. You are falling away from grace. Do you understand this? Like he's being really direct with them, really direct, because he wants to make sure there is no ambiguity here. This isn't what a true believer would do. Well, what would a true believer do? That's verse 5. Verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, true believers wait. They eagerly wait. They continually wait. They perseveringly wait for the hope of righteousness that will be theirs. It's not their own righteousness that they're waiting for. It's not kind of self-righteousness or righteousness through the law. It is righteousness through the finished work of Christ. We will stand righteous before God through him and him alone. And what counts in Christ? Is it circumcision? No. Uh, is it uncircumcision? No, not again. The only thing that counts in Christ is faith working through love. That's what counts there. Something he'll talk more about in verses 13 to 15, and we will too. Now, the rest of verses 7 to 12 are him just speaking very personally and pastorally on this same topic, and I think we can walk through this really, really quickly. Uh, he begins in verse 7 by affirming their former and current course. You were running well. He, he has no question that they were actually doing it, and this thing is going crazy, isn't it? Um, then he asks, who's hindering them now? Well, of course he knows the answer. He just wants to be able to say, look, it's not God. All right, that's who's... God is not the one who's doing this. The one who called you is not the one taking you down this path. Just recognize that. If you go down this path, you're not going down God's path. It's a different path altogether. Uh, and then he quotes a little saying just to show the Galatians how this little change to the gospel, probably how it was being presented. This is just a little addition. You know, it's just you know, Jesus and the law. It's just a little. No, no, no. A little leaven, leavens the whole lump. It's going to destroy everything. Everything's gone if you go this route. It's not just a little little thing. Um, he then expresses next his confidence that they won't make this choice. I don't really think that he has this confidence here. Not really. I think this is kind of like how, you know, parents will say to their kids, I have every confidence that your room will be clean by the time I get home from work, which, you know, translated means your room better be clean before I get home from work. I'm going to kill you if it's not right. Like it's, it's like a nice way of saying you better make this decision. I have every confidence that you're not going to make the wrong decision here, Galatians. Translated, you better not make the wrong decision here, Galatians. You better do uh, what I'm telling you to do here. He also expresses his belief that the people causing these problems in Galatia will be punished by God, if that's not clear. And then he concludes by affirming that this isn't what he preaches, because if this is what he preached, then he wouldn't be persecuted. The whole reason Paul is continually under persecution by the Jews is because he goes into town after town after town, synagogue after synagogue, and he's like, look, Jesus has come, the law is done. That's not popular, not in the Jewish world. If he still preached circumcision, then he wouldn't, he wouldn't be persecuted. But he's not preaching that. So, so, you know, if he starts preaching that, yeah, the offense of the cross will be removed and not so subtle jab, but, but you know, he leaves his most cutting remark. All right, to the end, I couldn't resist that one, sorry. 
He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And look, Paul is sarcastic. You're seeing that here. He can be very sarcastic sometimes. And sarcasm can be an excellent tool of rhetoric for teaching and for making a point. And he uses it like a master craftsman here, just driving that point over and over again to show them how this is not the right choice. So he's doing that here. It's one of his best examples of sarcasm in all of his letters. But I also think it has a little bit more damning of a meaning. He's saying to them, I wish you'd become eunuchs. And we hear that and we're like, okay, so what's the big deal about that? Well, remember what these false teachers are wanting the Galatians to do? They want them to live their life according to the Old Testament law, right? So, all right. Moses, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, makes it very clear that eunuchs are not welcome in the assembly of the Lord. If you're a eunuch, don't, don't plan on gathering with the assembly. Don't plan on coming into the temple. Don't plan on, you're excluded at that point. And I kind of think that that's ultimately what he's getting at here. He wishes that they would be excluded. He wants them to be cut off from God's people particularly from the Galatian believers that they are causing so much trouble for right here. He wants them gone. I think that's really what that comment is aimed at. You see, this is all about freedom, all about freedom, freedom from uh, living your life as if you have to earn God's favor in some way, and then freedom to rest in the sufficiency of the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ, that he really is enough. Not, in fact, he's more than enough. He's, he's everything you need. He's all that you need. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one will come to the Father except through him. That's your freedom. You're free to not have to wonder anymore whether or not you will be accepted by God. And I get it for us. You know, This is kind of the, the, the first of his application points, and it's one we sort of addressed along the way really throughout the whole book. So I'm not maybe building it out as much as I might some of the others, but... I get that, that none of us in this room are probably tempted to turn back to the Old Testament law to find our acceptance before God. I doubt any of you are having that problem right now in your life. Someone's coming to you like, hey, look, you really want to be a child of God? You've got to convert to Judaism. It doesn't happen for us. But I would also remind you that there is no end to the number of things, though, that would call for your heart to place your faith in it in order for God to accept you, most notably your own self-righteousness. Of all the dangers that, that I think call the, 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 the siren songs that call to our hearts to try to draw us away from the sufficiency of Jesus, it has to be our own self-righteousness. It has to be. you just got to be good enough. you just got to do the right things and not do the wrong things. And if you can just keep that kind of life going, God will accept you. And that's not just for unbelievers. That's for me. That's my, I've said that numerous times to you. That is my heart's constant temptation to want to place my faith in myself. That God loves me when I do right and hates me when I do wrong, and I just have to try to keep that balance. That is, that is a lie. It's a lie. That is me wanting to put my hope in my own self-righteousness. And so I would just say to us, guard your souls, folks. Guard your souls, Cling to the sufficiency of Jesus, that he is all you need, 
everything you need, the way, the truth, the life. And if you have him, you have everything. Keep your trust in him alone. And on the note of keeping your trust in Christ, let me also encourage you to persevere in your faith. Hold tight to it. Hold fast to it. Don't let go. And and let's not pretend uh, this morning that that isn't a struggle sometimes. Because it is. It's a struggle for me sometimes. I can think back to points in my life where I felt like my faith had become as thin as a spider web. And that could break at any moment. Like I'm just barely holding on, God. We go through those times. We go through those moments of doubt and question, and I can't always explain why, and I don't know, you know the circumstances of your own life, if that's what you're going through right now, but I would just encourage you and remind you that God sustains and preserves his children And that you, if you hold fast to Christ, will persevere through it. Don't let go. Don't let go. And so I am confident that you will do all I have said. uh, And that our great and gracious God will keep you until the end. Thank you for laughing there. Um, And in that confidence, why don't we bow our heads then and thank give thanks to God for the sufficiency we have in Christ. Father, thank you so much for Jesus He is our everything. He is the only thing we need. You have not accepted us because of ourselves. There is nothing, nothing good in us, nothing you wanted. And may we remember that and rejoice in that. That is not a a truth that brings condemnation. That is a truth for the believer that should bring great joy. You have chosen us in spite of who we are. And you have made us righteous in Jesus alone. And so may we never turn to anything else to try and try to find our acceptance before you. The self-righteousness of our own hearts constantly calls to us, God, help us to fight against that and to cling to Jesus and Jesus alone. And then help us to persevere in our faith, Lord. Help us to hold fast to what we have heard since the beginning, to not let go, to not waver in our confidence. But when those moments come and we're doubting and our faith seems so thin, God, sustain us preserve us, hold us, bring us through that, and strengthen our faith again so that we can cling to it to the very end. We know that we have a hope of righteousness coming, and it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that will cover our sins and make us acceptable to you on that day. And so until that day comes, God, hold us close, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.